I'm John Ronson, and you're listening to the World Is Wrong podcast. Here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Paul Williams, the director, not the songwriter or the rock critic or the architect. The other Paul Williams. In this, our fourth season of the World is Wrong podcast, we're doing something a little different. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and Paul, Paul Williams, that is, has graciously agreed to join us to share excerpts and outtakes from his memoir, Harvard Hollywood Hit Men and Holy Men, currently available as part of the Screen Classics Collection from the University Press of Kentucky. Williams is the director of The November Men, which World is Wrong listeners will already be familiar with, as well as films like Out of It from 1969 and The Revolutionary from 1970, both starring a young John Voight. Williams, with his Pressman Williams production partner, Edward Pressman, was a producer of films like Brian De Palma's Sisters and The Phantom of the Paradise, as well as Terrence Malick's Badlands. Beyond the movies, Paul rode many of the movements of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both political and cultural, with characters as varied as Karen Black, Eldridge Cleaver, Henry Kissinger, and most of the important directors associated with New Hollywood. If you're interested in the story of New Hollywood, Paul's memoir fills in some major gaps. And if you're too lazy and or cheap to get the book and read it, well, this podcast will give you a taste of what you're missing. In today's episode of the podcast, Paul reads a section from his book about settling a labor dispute on the set of the film Badlands while in the midst of performing a Buddhist alchemical healing ritual. I am in my best shape since the lightweights as a result of the daily physical yogas or holy gym. With a diet featuring ricotta cheese and lentils, my body rests slightly on my soul. After nine months of meditations, I am master of my breathing, able to inhale and exhale only once in a minute rather than the six or seven breaths of low breathing. I can chant tones that vibrate each of my vertebrae with different musical notes up and down the spine. I can stop all and any thought at will to stay in the emptiness, the starry blackness of the void. This is the state one must have accessible in order to do the advanced Buddhist meditations. It's like the dark infinity refuge that I first discovered in my green bed when we moved away from home and friends in the Bronx. Hollywood is far away. I am finally ready to start the highest meditation, the alchemical transformation. But Ed Pressman suddenly shows up at the Eureka Center and pleads that I fly immediately to the Colorado location of Badlands, starring Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. He says the crew assembled by the production manager has refused to continue working for the first-time director Terrence Malick, whom I had championed to Ed. Ed says, Terry punched out the production manager, Lou Stroller. The crew are with Stroller because they are dependent on him for their future work. You have to go and get them back to work. I say, why can't you go? 
He says, no, no, what am I going to do? I said, talk to them. He says, no, I can't do it. You know how to talk to them. You must do it. I arrive in Pueblo and schmooze with the strikers in the hot sun on the cloudless Colorado plain as far as the eye can see. I repeat a mantra to small groups of the crew. This is not a low-budget piece of shit. This movie is a classic. This will be the high point of your professional life. Work on. At midday, I walk back to a cheap two-story motel. I bolt the door and lower the blinds of the small room. I follow the instructions for the ritual of alchemical transformation. I undress. Naked, I sit down in the darkened room and assume a sitting yoga position. I light the candle that I brought from New York. I write my mother's first name, Mildred, on a rectangular card and lean it below the candle. I meditate on the flame, an aid to single-pointed focus. Soon my eyes roll up and I am in dark outer space where the stars twinkle. These stars are actually the phosphorus excitations on the ends of the receptor nerves which surround the eye's optic nerve. If I open my eyes in this state, I can simultaneously see these little explosions of phosphines as well as the room in front of me. The Buddhists call this seeing the baraka. I am in void for several moments. Mildred emerges in profile in a tableau in front of me. She sits on a chair at her pink formica kitchen table in the dining alcove of her Manhattan apartment. There are napkins in a holder on the table, some woodcuts by my sister on the cream wall behind her. She wears 1950s teardrop-shaped eyeglasses and a house dress and makeup. Red lipstick. She is in her thirties. Mildred is in her prime. I look at her. She's motionless. She is eight feet away. Then she turns her head to the right and looks straight at me. I look at her left eye. At first I blink a bit, but then settle into the eye-to-eye contact that Oscar calls trespasso. Slowly her makeup melts and slides off her face as her dress oozes off her body. Then the table dematerializes. Her eyeglasses, too. Every manufactured detail of life falls away. Then the room itself is gone. She has emerged out of her everyday visible state into her true nature. Then she stands and faces me, head to toe, naked. We are together, innocent in the void. I do nothing but look. She looks back. A stream of white gushes from my heart across the divide to her heart, and then from her heart back into my heart. This stream is visible. I can see this horizontal track of white light between us. It pushes and pulls. It lasts 30 seconds and stops. I start to cry. I am sad. The white tidal energy is gone. I will not be held close to her body anymore. I am no longer her darling baby. Tears run from my eyes. I feel alone. I remember that Oscar said, if you encounter your parents, quote, wish them the highest spiritual development they could possibly have in this lifetime, given their experiences of life, end quote. I wish it for her completely. I feel free from my responsibility for my mother. My child inside saw her as an ideal, But my mother is only who she happens to be in her own life, a victim of her own parents, her own traumas. This is one woman with her own passions, excesses, 
and crazy idiosyncrasies. It is still as we stand and look at each other. She is beyond my arm's reach. Moments passed. Then the white energy rises up my spine, up to the top of my head, and out the top, and it arcs high across the distance between us, and then drops down into the top of Mildred's head. A second later, the arc of light flows out from between her legs like a biplane crop duster that swoops downward toward the floor and then acrobatically climbs right up into my own perineum. And in no time, once again, out the top of my head. And the light keeps circulating. It feels serene, perfect. Like an actor who knows his lines perfectly, his next line comes out of nowhere. I remember the second instruction from Oscar. Wish them love. I wish my mother love, the best she could have. The oval white energy flows around and through our bodies, not as a horizontal push or pull. And then Mildred, in the emptiness, starts to shrink. She gets smaller and smaller and smaller until she is a miniature but fully formed human homunculus. I remember a medieval woodcut of a tiny person at the controls inside a huge mechanical human being. No other thoughts. And before I can begin to wonder, this five-inch-tall entity rushes toward my heart, hits my chest, and passes right through into my beating heart. I sit in amazement, and in a moment I am back, suddenly fully present in the motel room. I do a bow with hands pressed and then blow out the candle. I start to put on clothes for further labor management mediating. But three minutes after I blow out the candle, on the ratty bed, while I pull on a sock, my body starts to shake. It starts in my heart, heartbeat by heartbeat, the maternal homunculus grows bigger. Relentlessly it grows and slowly fills my arm, my left arm, my left leg. It fills the entire left side of my body, but it does not rise past my throat. It stays below my head. This energy expands to the limit of my skin, and then it begins to convulse. The energy expands to the limit of my skin, and then it begins to convulse in a turgid wash. These left-side convulsions last two minutes and then stop. I sit on the bed in awe. I do nothing. I wait to see what else might happen. After 15 minutes, I observe nothing else extraordinary. I finish dressing and go outside into the summer heat and blinding sun and look for the angry crew folk. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy to put it mildly. The next day, the movie makers begrudgingly return to work with a late morning call. I visit my friend Brian Probin, the director of photography. He tells me he feels ill and wants to return to London. Terry is eager to have the young camera operator, Tak Fujimoto, do the director of photography's job. But Steve Lawner is senior and agrees to take over for two weeks. Then Tak will get his first DP job. We all agree. I skip lunch with the company and go back to my motel room and undress. I sit down on the floor. I light the candle. I write my father's first name, Murray, on a card and lean it against the candle. I concentrate with single-pointed focus on the flame and soon am in the starry void. Nothing happens. I am dismayed as I look into empty outer space. Then I spot a man far away, a football field away. 
I want to look him in the eye, but I just look at the tiny, distant figure. Suddenly, he rushes toward me faster than any mortal football player. In one second, he confronts me, stationary, a mere foot away, one big face. His big eyes stare at me. For three seconds, I look intently at my left eye, and he is intense, powerful. I am transfixed. Then he quickly grows tall. I must look up to see the face of the giant that towers over me. I am a little kid, and I start to cry, tears down both cheeks. I say, I'll be whatever you want me to be. Just get your foot off my neck. I say, I'll be whatever you want me to be. Just leave me alone. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I sob for some minutes. I remember then to wish my father as much spiritual development as he could have in his lifetime. It's a new feeling, a good one. He was born poor, then a child of the Great Depression, subjected to abuse and violence from the uneducated parents. To know that he was a flawed mortal, struggling to make his way the best he could in the world, is suddenly for me to know that he is not, in his essence, an autocratic monster. This poor parent of mine is a bruised, damaged personality with a struggle. He made sure I had the skills to succeed in the difficult world as he found it. I get to empathize with the villain in my life. I wish him well and hope for his highest possible spiritual evolution. A huge weight lifts off the top of my head and my shoulders. I feel that it is over. I will no longer be hurt by him. I am overwhelmed by love for him. But I do not put this new feeling of love for him into words to wish him love with full intention because I don't get the chance. He suddenly shrinks into a five-inch homunculus and pop right through my sternum. Little Murray rushes into my heart. I sit silently this time on the bed. I wait for what I expect to happen next after my experience yesterday with little Mildred. Nothing happens. I snuff the candle. I do not go outside. I do not get dressed. I lie on the bed. In three minutes, heartbeat by heartbeat, the energy begins to fill my body. Same as with Mildred, but only now it is the right side. This homunculus expands, but also stays below my head. My body starts to convulse. It agitates my right arm, torso, and leg. These surging convulsions last for a couple of minutes. Then it is over. I start to dress. In a few moments, I collapse backward onto the motel room bed again. The right side of my torso and the left side of my torso sashay and waves back and forth, a horizontal wash cycle in a bobbing washing machine that is now me. I just let it be until the blending waves diminish and the turgidity calms. In a couple of minutes, I feel a balance and quiet inside my body. This is what a mystical reconciliation feels like in a hologram of the second kind, the alchemical kind. Remember yourself is the Sufi's emergency warning to escape the control of your personality. Remember to visit your thoughtless, serene place. Remember your higher self above the rushing tides. At a mysterious airplane hangar in Pueblo, Marty Sheen's character, the serial killer Charles Starkweather, 
is taken in handcuffs by a crowd of troopers to a private plane for transport to jail, watched by his articulate teenage nincompoop girlfriend, Holly Fugate, Sissy's character. These were the people that occupied Terry's imagined badlands. My head sits peacefully on top of Mildred and Murray within, awake on top of the world. I remember myself with just a slight smile on my face. St. Paul and Freud plumbed having different parts. Everyone has at least two personalities, the one you like and the one you don't like. What matters is the presence of spirit in a frequency beyond personality. Dear Listener, If you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes, scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score. That was a great reading, Paul. Thanks for sharing it with us. Well, my pleasure. I wanted to start with this piece because I think it captures this uh, wild balancing act you found yourself performing during the time of your greatest activity in the birth of New Hollywood. Can you speak to this balancing act? Hmm. Well, of course, I didn't really see it as a balancing act. I saw that there was a direction I was going in and I had responsibilities that I had uh, uh, that I had to take care of. Um, I mean, Ed Pressman and I had a film company, and I really was the uh, uh, you know the front man. I was the guy who contacted everyone, who made all the initial contacts, and was pretty good at talking to people. So. Uh, I uh, I was given a lot of the, uh, what would you call it, labor. I handled labor problems. I handled bringing in people to our group, Terry, Malik, uh, Brian De Palma, Bert Schneider, Bob Rafelson. Uh, that was what I did. I, I, I pretty did. And then Ed would... Uh, you know, help them and um, fulfill the function of producer. So to keep uh, the studios at bay. So, yeah. uh, Yeah, so basically at this particular juncture, I'd made my... uh, I'd made out of it the revolutionary dealing and I uh, had spent a lot of time in Algeria I think at that point, yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway, so I was in the midst of, uh, you know, pursuing this uh, Sufi training for almost nine months full time. And it was, you know, uh, an eye opener, to put it mildly. It was a a serious uh, spiritual education. It was like going to university for enlightenment with an authentic master. Extremely interesting. In the middle of that, Ed Preston comes in and tells me Terry's slugged the the production manager and everybody quit and wouldn't work anymore. 
And that was my real job going down there. But more important to me was to do the final highest meditation of the Buddhist uh, evolution to uh, enlightenment, which at that point was called the alchemical transformation. So I understood it. And that's what I did in the midst of doing my labor mediation. I just something about the balance of those two tasks seems so much like, well, this is why I wanted to start it, because I feel like this is at the core of your book. This is someone who is having these fabulous, glamorous, exciting cultural experiences that the reader, I as the reader, oh, I wish I was on the set of Badlands. And then this character, you, are being pulled into revolution, mind expansion, into these other things that are a part of your work, but also in some, I guess I, I find it fascinating the way that you, your story balances these pulls of wanting to be a creative person in the mix of the world that's making things and also this pull to be an enlightened person, which necessarily pulls you into more extraordinary realms. Well, you could see it as, you know, a, a kind of a, a dialectic between personality and essence. And in some sense, you have to build up your ego uh, before you can move away from it. Uh, and so you might see it as a, a kid from the Bronx who went to Harvard and started to make movies and built his ego. And uh, to such an extent that uh, he could see that it wasn't going to be totally fulfilling, that the ego was not going to make you uh, a deeply serene or happy person. And that's the privilege, I guess, of having more money than you can possibly spend or having access to places you couldn't believe you had access to. And this is what everybody lives for. But it's kind of empty. Most people spend their whole lives trying to get there. And then, oops, they're 70 years old. And <laughs> their enlightenment, they have about you know a month or two or a year or two to get it together before they die. I mean, uh, I saw fairly early in my life that uh, you know life is a preparation for death. And, uh, you know, Woody Allen used to say, you know, making movies is just a way to distract yourself from thinking about death. He wouldn't make any contributions to film preservation. <laughs> this does lead me to a question. Perhaps it's fanciful. But when you watch the film Badlands or you think about the, the cinematic effect of that film, do you believe that in any sense your alchemical ritual on the set or adjacent to the set or as part of your time as part of your work as a producer that that in any way informed the weird magic of that film or was a, it associated with whatever it is that makes that film no. so Absolutely. mysterious and compelling? No, not in the least. Okay. No credit. The only thing I did no was the, the only thing I did was uh, stop the crew from uh, running off twice. Uh, I told you the story. The one day I had to go down another time. They stopped working because someone got hurt on the set. The special effects man got burned, and there was a big fight over you know whether just 
send him to a hospital or not, and the crew felt Terry hadn't acted properly, and they all walked off, so I had to come back down and get him back to work again. So I really went down to Colorado twice to get his crew back to work for him. So in that sense, I had made a contribution, but not to the not to the story or the anything about the film. Oh, except, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not then. I mean, before the film began, Terry had, uh, what's his name, Don Johnson, who he wanted to play Marty Sheen's role, uh, Charlie Starkweather. And I said to Terry, oh, my God, you don't know anything about acting. And Don Johnson at that point couldn't act. Um, I said, look, you're, you're a genius. You know what you want, but you don't know how to get it. Now, Marty Sheen's a good actor. You tell him what you want, and he's going to give it to you. Uh, and I sort of insisted to Terry that he use Marty Sheen and got to the point where we were screening. We screened Don Johnson stuff. We screened Marty Sheen stuff. I told him to watch the subject with Sir Roses. And finally, I know his wife and my girlfriend both liked Don Johnson because they thought he was sexy. But I said, Terry, it's your first movie. You want to come out as being a good director? Hire, hire, <laughs> hire Martin Sheen. You'll look like a genius. Hire Don Johnson. You're going to look like a schlep. And that's so, yeah, I had an effect on that movie. Well, this is a good place. Talk a little bit about how you came to meet Terrence Malick and how you and Pressman came to work with him. Well, I, I don't really no, That's not that interesting a story. I, my, there's a long story with having to do with Jake Brackman and, and me. Uh, we had been on The Crimson together. We worked on a film project together for Bob Rafelson uh, and Bert Schneider. And, what film project uh, was that? It was called Tribe in the Hills, all about the Rastafarians in Jamaica and their, and their, you know, their, their practices of tr transcending ego. Um, but of course, and it was also about the breakdown of male macho, a guy filled with himself who gets uh, uh, tricked by. Uh, uh, He's just full of pride, and uh, it's really the story of his uh, transformation. Uh, but anyway, that movie, uh, Rafelson and Schneider had no idea what it was about. It was way before its time. But anyway, Terry was a very good friend of Jake's. Um, and I, they were best friends. And Jake told me Terry had this movie that he wanted to do. And uh, so then I got them together with Ed, and that's how it happened. It wasn't, uh, I didn't have a, my, my relationship with Terry was really through Jake. And, uh, and I must say that, <laughs> well, I must say too, when he did his next movie, Days of Heaven, uh, I remember Bert Schneider said to me, uh, what do you think? Should we do this film with Terry? And I said, yeah, yeah, you can do the film with Terry. He's really, really he's a wonderful director. But I tell you, you got to watch out because he really likes pretty boys. Uh, and he's not, he doesn't really understand acting that much yet. And uh, so anyway, so Bert went ahead and did Days of Heaven. And 
and Terry spent two years doing voiceovers trying to fix up Gear's performance. I mean, Gear eventually became a very good actor, but he was pretty rough when he did Days of Heaven. And you, and you're saying that when Jake Brackman, is that who you said his name is? Yeah. Yeah, when Jake Brackman introduced you to Malik, he, Malik had the script for Badlands and was already developing it? Oh, yeah. Well, this gets into a little bit about, and I, I know you talk about it a lot in your book, but we recently lost Ed Pressman. He is, he's gone to that great production house in the sky. <laughs> and you have a, you know, a lifetime association with him th professionally and also, also personally. And he shows up a lot in the readings we're doing from your book, but never as the main course, although you do get into it within your book. If you could speak a little bit to your to the origins of your relationship with Pressman, your professional relationship, anything you'd like to say to uh, fill in that part of the story for our listeners. Uh, mm. uh, well, let's see. From the point of view of the book and the character, I would say that when I was in England, uh, I was I wanted to make a movie. I took the money I had for the second semester at Cambridge and rented a camera and bought a roll of film. I didn't have enough money to develop it. It was 35 millimeter color. And, but I was going to shoot it with the uh, Footlight uh, Club at Cambridge. Uh, and I met Ed the night before I was going to shoot at a Thanksgiving party in London. And... Uh, he came over to me and said, I hear you make movies, because I'd made three shorts by that time. Uh, I said, yeah. He says, well, he was trying to make films at Fieldston School when he was there. and uh, Well, no, he was trying to make films with old Fieldston friends. But the writer would argue with the editor, would argue with the director. They never got a foot of film shot. And I said, well, with me, I do all the jobs, so all you got to do is talk to me. And he came and watched uh, a shoot the next day. It was a sex scene. <laughs> so not that it was particularly risque. But, you know, uh, New York's about money. Washington's about power. And Hollywood's about sex. So anyway, he came up and watched that scene, which went very well, and wanted to form a company that night uh, to make movies. And... Uh, you know, I've always uh, undercapitalized, and so uh, I agreed. And then we formed a company, and uh, he put up the money to develop the film and do the post-production, get the music. And that was the beginning of Pressman Williams. It was supposed to be Williams Pressman, but it's a long story. I, I wanted to be less seen. In general, I like less credit and le to be less public. Already working at subverting that ego. Yeah. Although if you read the book, you'll understand something else. Well, you know, I've um, read the book, Paul. Well, let's talk to our listeners once they read the book. I've read I've read this book <laughs> twice. Um, okay. So anyway, there's a lot more going on than that. Yes. But so to talk about Ed is, Ed, I mean, it was in the beginning we were great together and as time went on we had our problems and that's all in the book yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a hollywood story for sure you also reference in this section 
something that also was covered in the book, but isn't something we're going to be getting into too much in your readings for the podcast. But in the alchemical process that you describe in this section, you talk about your difficult relationship with your father. Would you mind filling in a little bit about that for our listeners? Well, uh, well, I mean, as I experienced it, it was probably like uh, having John Stuart Mill Sr. as your father. He was a, you know, he was a, a school principal. He believed in America. He believed in English literature. And he believed in Harvard. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I was going to learn to write and go to Harvard and uh, not be a great baseball player. Um, uh, and he made sure that I had those skills. But uh, from my point of view, of course, I was, it was tremendously uh, controlling. And uh, I probably destroyed my will to some extent. Uh, but I'm, I was a very good performer, so I don't know. Yeah. In this, the, the sense I get, it's like, it's, this is the comp complexity of the parental relationship. He, he, he loved you the best he could and he gave you tremendous, uh, you know, resources because he forced you to, to develop your own resources, but obviously in the course of that, maybe some of your emotional uh, needs. Were, well, he wanted you know. me to become the. He wanted me to become the person he wanted to become. Right. So, uh, in that sense, you know, it was very carefully controlled. I wanted to be a baseball player. I had a pretty good baseball player. Um, but that was. Uh, I mean, there's some wonderful scenes where I'm finally forbidden to play baseball. I went out, it was the last day of the Babe Ruth League season. I was one of the three batters who could win the batting championship. And man, he didn't let me out of the house. I had to stay in the house and study for the biology regents. It was summer school and I was picking up credits so that I could take advanced placement courses during the year, which I needed to get to Harvard. So uh, it was hard to believe that uh, I couldn't, I was simply not allowed out of the house for the final game. So it was tough. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that again, that's, I just wanted to give listeners a little bit of a sense of what informs the, what I found to be a really moving uh, scene of personal healing with your, with both your parents. Ah, I see. Yeah, well, eventually. I was going to say that was how it seemed uh, subjectively while one was going through it. Eventually, of course, one sees through those delusions. You see, he's just a poor guy who is struggling to, you know, do the best he could in this life with the oppression and um, traumas that he had. And he wasn't really an ogre. He was a guy who was just trying to do as well as he could in this ruthless American society. And from his point of view, I think he did pretty well. Uh, he had no idea how the system really worked, but that's something else. He got you to the place where you could uh, make those realizations yourself. 
Well, yeah, I suppose. But I there was a lot of luck riding on how I got my insight. There are plenty of people who went to Harvard who never saw what I saw there. I mean, I was six foot three and weighed 167 pounds. And so, you know, the Harvard crew coach, I think his name was... Uh, uh, the Lowell, the Lowell speak only to the uh, Cabot. Yeah, if Cabot, Cabot and Parker, you know, the Lowell speak only to the Cabots. The Cabots speak only to Lowell's, and Lowell speak only to God. Right, that's the way they speak of it in terms of the kings and princes of New England. But anyway, they all row on the Harvard team, and you know, Jack Lowell and. Cabot was the coach, and Theodore Roosevelt the fourth rode in the boat. And, you know, all kind, you know, it was all Groton and Exeter. All these the top oarsmen at Harvard were all in this boat, and me from public school, <laughs> because I I had the right build for lightweight crew. And man, that was a that was certainly to see how that world worked my freshman year was at one that made me pretty radical too i must say uh but to see just how the establishment owns the joint and how their world works is was quite a revelation to me uh you know and that the girl i'm having this wild affair with turns out to be one of the richest women in america i didn't know that so a lot of and then uh, you know, it, a lot of things happened to me while I was there uh, that uh, allowed me glimpses into the worlds I had no idea existed. Extraordinary realms, you might say. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, and I write all about them. I mean, that's the trip of the book. That's why I really wrote the book. Yes, and I really do hope that people who listen to this do take the time to read the book we're just giving you a taste of what's in it but yeah it is a it is a it is a deep and profound story i think it's useful for well also I, you know i tell the truth i'm not trying to uh, turn myself into a hero this you could call this an anti-memoir it's a story of my breaking down my, my uh, wonderfulness and my personality and uh, you know not I'm thinking what I've done is so wonderful, but as in fact, a lot of it has been stuff you had to break through in order to get to some reasonable, joyful place. It's not buying the American dream. Hey folks, Andras here. Thanks for following along with the podcast. I hope it's something you're enjoying and maybe it's even inspiring you to check out some of Paul's films and if you haven't already seen them, some of the films he's talking about. In the next episode, Paul talks about a gang of directors, actors, writers, and producers who surrounded him and his then-girlfriend Margot Kidder in the early 1970s, including folks with names like De Palma, Spielberg, and Scorsese. So often during the week, Margot, Jennifer, and I meet up with friends and have expensive dinners at the Uwear Inn and other posh eateries. I am happy to pay for the dinner. Hungry? Eat. A real need is one that can be satisfied after all. I have in mind a plan to form a commune with the regulars. But long before that happens, everybody gets successful and goes off to burrow in their individual careers. Another delusion 
but this barren effort lets a little more light into my soul. I don't want to compete. I want to cooperate. I drift in a different direction. If you have questions for Paul or me, please send them to contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com and we'll do our best to answer them in subsequent episodes. The link to purchase Paul's book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, is in the show notes. And you can still find our posts on Instagram at the World is Wrong Podcast and on Twitter at World is Wrong Pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Andras Jones, reminding you that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.